So the reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus and himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. Father God, please, would you... Uh, Would you help us to see how good your purposes are? Would you open our hearts to one another as well as to you tonight so that we might be a community which declares your good purposes are to reconcile us not just to yourself but also to one another. What a wonderful thing that is. Please would we see that tonight. Amen. At the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month, In 1918, the guns finally fell silent on the Western Front. After four years of mud and blood, carnage which had cost the lives of 17 million people, peace broke out. And the nations that had been through that horror of war were so appalled by what happened and so determined that it never happened again that they formed alliances like the League of Nations to try and prevent the outbreak of conflict. And they referred to 1914 to 18, to that horrific four years, as the war to end all wars. Never will it happen again. It's 100 years since the end. Next month will be exactly 100 years since the end of the war to end all wars. And in that time, in that 100 years... Well, precise figures are hard to to come by, but around about 168 million men, women and children have been slaughtered in armed conflict since the war to end all wars. We no longer call it the war to end all wars, just the first world war. Now, we rightly rail against the the pride and the greed and the foolishness of politicians when they lead countries unnecessarily into wars. And we rightly rail against the 
the wickedness of politicians who use the stirring up of hatred for their own ends, who turn Republican and Democrat into almost armed conflict, who stir up Brexiteer and Remainer to hatred. We really, we get very angry when people behave like that. But the truth is that when we stop looking outside and we look into our own hearts, we find that we are part of the problem. Because actually the truth is, you and I share the same disease that's caused 168 million people to be killed since the end of the war to end all wars. Too often we live in in silos, surrounded by people who might look different from us, but basically they are just like us. They share our opinions, they like the same things, they go to the same places, they speak the same way, and they look very similar. And we look down on people who are different. We hang out with PLUs, people like us. We like PLUs. And people who are not PLUs, well, we end up looking down on and thinking negative things. We undervalue those who are less educated, less politically savvy, less tolerant, less trendy than us. And we might not go to war with bullets and tanks. I hope we don't. But our friendships and our families are marred by broken relationships, by bitter resentments, cold wars of close friends who now no longer speak to one another. And sometimes there's open hostility, if we're honest. We all know that. We retreat from and drop friends when there's conflict rather than working through it. We hold on to hurt and we, we don't like to forgive fully and openly. And we're narrow and cliquey sometimes and homogenous in our friendships. The truth is that it's a problem for all humanity that we just don't seem to be able to live at peace and in unity except with people who are exactly like us. And even then, even then we know conflict. And in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us God has got the answer to this. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ not only reconciles us, restores our relationship with God above us, but it also restores our relationship with one another. He tells us wonderfully that every and any time that God calls us into relationship with himself, he also restores us into relationship with one another. That's always God's purpose. Peace with him is always accompanied by peace with one another. God is creating a new humanity through the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. He's creating a new humanity in whom his spirit dwells and over whom his peace reigns. That's what we're going to learn. The wonderful truth that God is creating a new humanity in whom his spirit dwells and over whom his peace reigns. Now, let's just remind ourselves before we dive in where we are. Paul wrote this letter of Ephesians uh, to the church or churches in in an area of Turkey um, called Ephesus. And his aim was to encourage them, don't be intimidated by the rich, powerful culture around you that despises you. In Christ, you have everything. Christ is in charge of all history. And Christ has given you every blessing. So don't be intimidated. And he taught uh, last week, we saw in chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10, he taught that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've gone from being dead to being alive, from being under God's wrath to being loved and seated with Christ in heaven. And now Paul turns from the vertical, how we relate to God, to the horizontal. 
And he, he, he basically wants us to think about, he said, look, you, you thought about how you related to God before you put your trust in Jesus and the difference that his death and resurrection makes. Now think about how you relate to God's people and the difference that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes. You see, we're, we're saved individually. Nobody else can put their trust in Jesus on your behalf. You've got to trust Jesus if you want to be saved from God's wrath and enjoy his blessings. But when you individually put your trust in Jesus, you're not saved into an individualistic relationship with you and Jesus. You're saved into a people, a new humanity. Ephesians calls us to find our identity, to to answer the question, who am I, by looking up, And saying, who am I? If I trust in Jesus, I am a child of God. I am loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a great eternal destiny. But it also calls us to answer, who am I? By looking out, I am part of a family. The church. My brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, three points for you. Firstly, through the cross, we who are far off are brought near. We'll dive in at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, the church in Ephesus was mainly comprised of people who were not from a Jewish background. I guess like probably most of us here tonight, they were, as they were called, Gentiles who turned to follow Jesus Christ. And Paul, just as he did in verses 1 to 10, gives us a before and after. This time the focus is on their relationship with the people of God. He shows us how desperate our predicament is outside of Jesus Christ and how wonderful it is to come to know him. So Paul is uncompromising and pretty clear and blunt in verses 11 to 12. He says, you, and that includes you and me, you are outside of God's people. See, in the Old Testament, God had promised, look, I know human, humanity, humans, men and women, you have ruined the world and brought death and sin and misery, but I'm going to undo that. And the focus of God's plans to undo that was, he said, I'll do it through the descendants of one man named Abraham. And his descendants, the the Jewish nation, the Israelites. And so Abraham's descendants are marked out as as a separate people, a special people through whom God is at work. And through whom God will bring about his promised rescue, his restoration, his forgiveness. And they were marked out with a physical sign, circumcision. Now in part, that sign was chosen because it involved, uh, it involved physically cutting the part of the body that's involved in procreation. And central to God's purposes was to create a new people. So to be uncircumcised, to be a non-Israelite, well, that meant you were outside of God's purposes. That meant you were outside of God's promises. That meant you were without hope and without God in the world. Uh, Max Hastings has made more money from war than most arms dealers could dream of. Uh, He's a historian. It's, It's all perfectly legitimate. He's an incredibly good historian. And his latest book recounts the first conflict that he physically was present at, the Vietnam War, as a very young reporter, very callow. 
And he talked um, in an interview recently that I was listening to about the, the last days in Saigon and just how terrifying it was in March and April 1975 as they realized that the war was going to end, the North was going to win, and Saigon was going to be overrun. And the, the U.S. Uh, sent helicopter after helicopter, those iconic images, into the embassy compound in Saigon. And in April, they, they said, American citizens, get there and you'll be rescued. The helicopters will land in the embassy compound on the roof and they will take you to safety. But if you were not an American citizen, well, you had no access to the rescue helicopter because you couldn't get into the American compound. That was for the citizens. And it's like that for for non-Jewish people. God says, my rescue will come through the Jewish people. And as a Gentile in the Old Testament, you're on the outside. You're not part of the realm in which his promises are being fulfilled. You're cut off from the fulfillment of God's rescue. You're outside of the compound where the helicopter is going to land. But, but now, it's another great turning point like 2-4, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Blood is death, life violently taken in the Bible. Now the Bible has loads of different ways to talk about our salvation. And many of us who call ourselves Christians get bored when Jesus' death that saves us is mentioned, which embarrasses us because we know we shouldn't. But we get bored because we think about it in the same way and we use the same words every time. But here Paul says something different. Here the imagery is not the legal imagery of being guilty but being justified by God. It's not the cleanliness imagery of the filthy being washed. It's not the resurrection imagery of the spiritually dead being brought to life. It's not the redemption imagery of slaves to sin being set free. It's not the sacrificial imagery of sins being atoned for by the true lamb of God. Here it's geography. It's spatial imagery. The distant are brought near. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. The start of human history, when we first sinned against God, a great flaming sword descended between the presence of God and all of us. And since that moment, even if, even if we could have walked up to near God, we had absolutely no hope of access. There is a chasm, a gulf, a flaming wall, an impenetrable barrier between us. We are hopelessly far away. Since that moment, we've been as far from God as the east is from the west. But now, the blood, the death, the cross of Christ has bridged the gap. We who were foreigners and aliens, with no claim on the promises of God, no part of the people of God, now we are saints and citizens, indeed verse 19 will tell us, we are family. No longer is God up there. You trust in Jesus, God is right here. You have access. We who are far can be near through Christ. Secondly, through the cross, we become one new people. So what does this mean for Jews and Gentiles? One of the great divisions of the ancient world, Jewish and Gentile. 
Well, Paul says that division has been abolished as both become part of one new people. Verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Christ brings peace by destroying the the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 14. Now what he's speaking about there is the law of Moses. It was God's good law and it was meant to act as a barrier, showing this is, this is what you need to do if you're going to be God's people and this is how you need to live. It was a deliberate barrier, but as humans are brilliant at doing, as soon as something makes us different, we use it for hostility. As soon as anything marks us out as different, we become tribal and we start to hate those who are not like us. We look down on them, we suspect them, we hate them. But Jesus, he brings down the Berlin Wall of the law of Moses, verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. What does that mean? Well, the purpose of the Mosaic Law, as I said, was to show you how to become the people of God. But Jesus fulfilled in his flesh and his life. He lived out the law and in his death he paid for our failure to obey it. And so you no longer need to obey the law of Moses to join the people of God. You just need to trust Jesus who's done that for you. Do you see? So you no longer have to keep all the Jewish regulations to become part of the people of God. Suddenly, access to the people of God is open to every culture. You don't have to speak a particular language. You don't have to dress in particular clothes. You don't have to sing particular sorts of songs. Every and any culture is welcome as they are to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and be part of God's people. Now it is really, really important as we'll see to notice that both Jew and Gentile are reconciled through the cross, verse 16. And in one body, that's Jesus' body that's put to death, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. You see, Jews as well as Gentiles needed forgiveness. They may have been near, but they weren't inside. Being a descendant of Abraham meant symbolically you were part of God's people. But it didn't mean you were really part of God's people unless you put your trust in his promises. Near, but not inside. In the the letter to the Galatians, Paul describes the law of Moses is like a schoolmaster. And the school analogy could be quite helpful here. He's saying, look, the, the Jewish people, they were sort of like pupils at a school. So they had some relationship with the schoolmaster, the teacher. They knew him, but it was a relationship of rules. They're nearer to him than, you know, kids who are not even at that school, but they're not in the family. It's just a, a relationship of rules. Neither Jew nor Gentile is part of God's family at this point. The Jews might be near, but they're not inside. But now, through Jesus, both those who are near and far off are equally, verse 15, invited to join one new humanity. 
Now, the implication of this, there are, there are a whole variety of ways we can go. But the first one is to note, you were not saved if you put your trust in Jesus for a little private relationship with him. God's purpose in saving you is not just to know him. His purpose requires your involvement in the lives of the people sitting around you. Don't worry, it looks a bit different for introverts and extroverts with our own personalities. But God's purposes in saving you was to make you part of a new people. To be human is to be relational and communal. And God wants that for you. We'll think about that a bit more at the end. But before we get there, there is a question we need to address. Three times in these verses, you'll see the word peace is used. And four times, he says one, one new body, one humanity, one person. Why is it, here's the question, why is it that the death of Jesus Christ brings peace and unity between humans? Now, it's obvious why the death of Jesus Christ brings peace and unity between us and God, because he pays for my sins, so there is no longer any judgment to fall on me. Uh, God can now welcome me. I can see why the death of Jesus brings peace between me and God, but why does the death of Jesus bring peace between the, the warring factions of humanity? Why does it bring peace between Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor? The answer, it seems to me, from these verses is this. The death of Jesus Christ brings peace between humans because the death of Jesus Christ puts all of us on the outside to start with. It's a pretty ugly circus in the States at the moment. Have you seen anything of the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Kavanaugh? And they've generated, uh, in most of the comments, a lot more heat than light, to be perfectly honest. But one of the exceptions, I thought, was the speech of Ben Sass in the Senate. It was 17 minutes that would be well worth your while of watching. It was true, noble, humble, and nuanced. And he lamented, it was very interesting what he said, he lamented at the start that both sides in the political divide have, quote, a tendency to make angels out of ourselves and demons out of the other. Such a striking phrase. We all have a tendency to make angels out of ourselves and our tribe and demons out of the other. That's the attitude at the heart of human divisions from bickering marriages to warring nations. To think far too highly of ourselves and our motivations and to think the worst of the other. But you see, the cross stops us from being able to do that. Because the cross shows that all of us are demons. The cross shows none of us are on the inside. All of us are on the outside of God's people. None of us, by virtue of birth or nationality or education or good works, are on the inside. All of us must humbly accept that, as we saw last week, we are sinners by nature, deserving of God's wrath, and outside the people of God. You see, the cross brings reconciliation between people Because the very qualification for joining the people of God is to recognize I do not deserve God to accept me and to kneel at the foot of the cross. And you just can't look down on other people if you're on your knees recognizing you're a sinner and you need God's saving. And so the cross brings peace. Not just peace with God, but peace with one another because it teaches us to look at ourselves rightly and to look at others rightly. 
Thirdly, together we are a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what's it like to be part of this new people reconciled through the cross? Three images, basically, are piled on top of each other in the final verses. God's citizens, God's family, and God's temple. God's citizens, God's family, and God's temple. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. I've got a friend in the States uh, who is a resident alien. It's a fantastic term for people who are not citizens but have a right to be there. We're not like that when we join the people of God. Gentiles aren't sort of second-class people of God. Everybody who trusts in God's promises fulfilled in Christ, Jew, Gentile, whatever, all have the full rights of citizens of God, the full rights under the kingdom of God, the full membership of his people. Better still, verse 19, we are members of God's household. That is, we are family. We're not just welcome into God's kingdom. We're welcome at his table. And the images, it's interesting. What are the images like in the Bible that describe our entry into the kingdom of God at the end of time when Jesus returns? Another friend posted on there online this week uh, pictures of his... um, is becoming a U.S. citizen and the citizenship ceremony and there's a there's a picture of the the president and there's a flag and there's him sort of swearing allegiance. It's not like that. A d- d- picture of God and and we swear allegiance to him as we walk into heaven. No, the pictures are intimate. They're a banquet where God serves us. Uh, a table heaving with with wine and fabulous food and He seats us with Him. We're not just citizens joining a kingdom. We are members of his household, called to banquet with God himself at his table. But the image then shifts, as Paul says, that to be God's household means we're not just like children who live in the house, we're also the bricks that make up the house. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Christ is the cornerstone on whom we rely. And together we are being built into a magnificent temple. Far more magnificent than the intimidating temple of Artemis at Ephesus that the Ephesians saw every day. Far more impressive than the temple at Jerusalem that they hear about from their neighbors. They are a living temple in which the almighty God, who cannot be contained in this universe, chooses to live by his spirit. What a thought. As we come together as God's people, God lives, God dwells. God is especially, supremely, particularly present in us. What does that mean for us practically, these truths? Two things. Live out your privilege as part of God's people and look at others in the light of the cross. Firstly, live out your privilege. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. God did not only reconcile you to himself at the cross, he reconciled you to others. And he calls us into a relationship with both himself and his people, always, no exceptions. The church is at the center of God's purposes for history. And God's purposes for your life involve you playing your part in whatever local manifestation outpost of church you find yourself 
That's God's purpose for you. Now, it's like football. You, uh, now that Arsenal are playing well again, I can have football illustrations without getting grief afterwards. It's a wonderful day. Uh, you can't be a footballer on your own. Yep, you can wear the kit. Yep, you can have a football, and yep, you can kick it. But you miss all the things that make football fun. Fouling, diving, abusing the referee. You can't do any of those things when it's just you. You need other people to to kick, pass, and score, and do all the really genuinely enjoyable parts of football. And the same goes for Christianity in church. People often say to me, oh, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And of course you're right. You just need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. But when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he calls you to join his family. God calls us not just to know him as father, but to know and love one another as brothers and sisters. And membership of God's people is an enormous privilege and blessing. And so when you make church a sort of penciled in option that you're happy to skip if a better thing comes up, or the thing that you attend if you feel like you need to, you miss out on God's great privileges. You're taking up your ball and going home and just kicking it against a wall on your own. But more than that, when we don't commit ourselves fully to church, when we don't invest ourselves the way that God speaks about here, seeing ourselves as part of his one new humanity, you step out of the priorities. You step out of the plans and you step out of the purposes that God has for you as part of his people. I have never, ever in my life met a Christian who is healthy and growing, who is not stuck in, committed and serving at a local church. Never. And so it is just worth asking yourself, do I view church the way God views church? And if I did view church that way, what would it mean practically for, I don't know, how often I miss church and what I miss it for? What would it mean for how often I pray for church and the people here and what I choose to pray for them? How would it affect uh, how I invest in people and in the relationships that I have here? Live out your privilege as part of God's people in a lonely city where there are epidemic levels of, of loneliness amongst young people. You have the privilege of being part of a family. Enjoy it. Secondly, uh, look at others in the light of the cross. Look at others in the light of the cross. Let the cross, the death of Jesus, be the lens through which you view other people. Look around. From the raw material of hopeless sinners, look around, genuinely look around. These people around you, hopeless, lost sinners, deserving of the wrath of God, like me, and look at what God has made them. Citizens over whom God rules. Family that God loves, and a temple in which he dwells. That's who you are sitting amongst tonight. Look around again and remember this. God has made us one and made peace where humans are naturally in conflict. And what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder, as the wedding service puts it. It's more than a tragedy when churches rebuild the barriers God has torn down, like this sign here. That sign, white zone, that's more than a tragedy, that's a blasphemy. We lose the right to call ourselves Christian if we endorse or tolerate racism, sexism, or any other wicked prejudice 
that means we put people outside of church who want to come in. But of course, there are more subtle ways in which we build walls either around our churches or even within our churches. And in this country, lots of things, I think, can form invisible barriers. We're more subtle, perhaps, in this country. Uh, Class, accent, education, the career that I do. What do you do? Okay. The clothes that people wear. All these things form natural barriers. They separate us. They just do. And naturally, if we're well brought up, we'll be polite to people who are different from us. Naturally, we'll be polite to people on the other side of those divides. But we won't invest ourselves beyond a, ah, very nice to meet you. How are you? We certainly wouldn't invite them into our homes or to come away on holiday with us. But in Jesus, God has torn down those barriers. In Jesus, God enables us to reach beyond our natural friendship groups. Because all of us are immigrants in the people of God. But God never treats us like immigrants. He treats you as a citizen, as a son, as a daughter. And if God treats the people around you like that, how dare I treat you any differently? Now, of course, this has implications not just for who we pursue friendships with, but also how we conduct our friendships and our family relationships. Christian marriages, Christian friendships, Christian families should be different if God, through Jesus, reconciles the hostile. We should be different. We must be. When we fall out, which we will because we all sin, when we disagree, when we failed one another, it is not good enough for us just to walk away from those relationships. We trust Jesus' death to reconcile us to God. When we sin, which we all do all the time, we trust, oh no, I know that Jesus has died for me so I can come back to God. We trust Jesus to do that. Let's trust him also to reconcile the relationships that are horizontal that we've ruined with our sins. Now don't mishear me. I'm not speaking a word to people who are suffering in abusive families or abusive marriages right now or abusive relationships. You need to be rescued out of the situation you're in, not seek to work for reconciliation. You need to get safe. And for others, well, it takes two to restore a relationship. And there are genuine complexities that mean sometimes it is not possible, in spite of all that you long for, to see a a reconciled relationship. But the point here is, let's make sure that the way that we look at other people is through the lens of the cross. Not as other. Let's remember that we were on the outside and welcomed in. And so let's seek to love others. And within the church, let's act as if the cross of Jesus Christ really does have the power to reconcile those who are different. Let's act like there is something more going on than just normal human behavior. That's... In one sense, that is a negative note to, and a challenging note to, to finish on. I think it is an important implication. But this passage is an encouraging passage. This passage is a positive passage. I mean, who here doesn't long for a solution to conflict? Conflict between societies, conflict in our society, and conflict in our families. Who here doesn't long to be part of a community that is rich and genuinely diverse? Who here doesn't long to be part of a people whose hallmarks are true equality 
and universal welcome and real forgiveness when they hurt one another. We all long for that. It's a human longing. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has created a new humanity. A humanity in whom his spirit dwells and over whom his peace reigns. Now, one outpost of that humanity happens to meet here. And you and I get to be part of it. But more than that, you and I get to make that blessing of peace and unity a lived out reality that's enjoyed by other people. And we get to do that by the way that we serve one another here. What a privilege. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that when we were far off, you did not just bring us back to yourself, but you brought us back to one another. Help us to have the faith that believes that is true. And so help us to to live out that peace and unity with one another here. We pray that we will be a place where people who are different feel loved and accepted. A place where people who fail are forgiven. And a place where all of us grow in our confidence in your power as we get involved in in loving and serving and making friendships across the natural barriers of our culture. And we pray this, that the watching world might see and might know that the Lord is here. Amen.